Hey, it's Asher with Unfeigned Christianity, where we discuss issues that threaten the sincerity of our faith. I am excited today to be jumping back in after a five-month hiatus, jumping back into the podcast, have several interviews ready to go to release for you all. Looking forward to them. Today on the show, we have three guests, not just one, not just two. But we have three guests, and I'm looking really looking forward to this conversation. Enjoyed the conversation we had it a week ago with Dan Ziegler from St. Cloud, Minnesota, Joshua Good from Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and then Matthew Milioni from Boston, Massachusetts. We believe that the end does not justify the means, correct? Am I right on that? That That is how I would have been taught growing up. Um, and I still strongly believe that today. So in other words, I cannot go about an unethical means in order to accomplish an ethical end, right? Or if we think in terms of spirituality and our Christian faith, um, it, you know, we can't coerce people into accepting Jesus, right? Or coerce people into becoming members of the church. That, that, that would be pointless. The end does not justify the means. Gaining a lot of Christian numbers, church members, does not justify the means through which we go about trying to get those people in the church, right? And there's conversation, obviously, we have conversation among racial issues. Like, we, we need to think through the means, how we talk about this, because there are so many different voices speaking into racial issues, such as Black Lives Matter and other critical theorists, and and we need we need to understand the language and kind of the history of some of these movements in order to better understand how to get people who may be averse to those voices, how to get them to talk about real racial issues, right? So the means through which we talk about this, we're not going to just link up arms with corrupt or or people, theorists that don't have a biblical worldview. A lot of people talk about that today. I have a question. Does that mean we should rethink the means through which we seek to bring about righteousness on earth in earthly governments, in earthly Babylons, so to speak? Does the means matter? about how God restores. God is working to restore creation. And does the means matter? And is the means of participating in a democratic society an appropriate means? Or is there something inherent within even participating in that that usurps and undermines the end goal? As one of the guests in today's show, Matthew Milioni, likes to say, the mythology of democracy. Have we bought in here in America into a myth, into a mythology that somehow a humanity could govern themselves perfectly according to God's design and that somehow we, being invited to vote in that and participate in that, we have a role, we can have a voice to speak into that will bring about transformation. Is that true? Or is that a myth? Do we get hooked into a myth? These are the... the Questions we wrestle with today with Dan Ziegler, Matthew Milioni, Joshua Good. I am thrilled to have them on. These are three men who I have come to appreciate on social media. 
in a com- if you're on social media and there's a thread, a conversation that is just kind of crazy, <laughs> maybe some crazy ideas or whatever. I have found that these three men often, as I'm scrolling down through and I see a comment that's like, that feels level-headed. That makes sense. I resonate with that. It's often one of these guys. Um, or there's others out there as well, but I, I really appreciate their voices, their stable voices that nudge us, if not provoke us, to Jesus and to rethink what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God in the Babylonian government of the United States of America. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Again, as always, if you appreciate Unfeigned Christianity and you want to support the work, you can do so for as little as $5 a month at Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash Asher Whitmer and you can do support the show for as little as $5 a month and get some extra bonus content in return. Here we go with my conversation with Joshua Good, Dan Ziegler, and Matthew Milioni. Right, it is good to be here with three three men on this podcast. This is the first time I have done a podcast of multiple interviewees, so um, we'll uh, learn. I'm going to learn how to keep the conversation going, give enough space for everyone to talk. Um, but I'm I'm excited to have with us today uh, Josh Good from Ephrata, Pennsylvania. I, he's down in my right hand corner, but I'm not sure if that's how it's showing up in the recording or not. Um, Josh and I have been interacting a little bit this year with the Restorative Faith Group on Facebook. That's a that's a, a Facebook group that got together kind of in response to the the racial uh, tension and conflict that's been happening, specifically after George Floyd. I think it was when when um that's when i was contacted and we've had the interact the privilege of being a part of different events there and uh helping create some resources to help uh conservative anabaptists think through race and and how christians can be a part of that conversation and and what what christians have to offer in the midst of all this racial tension we have here in America. So I've enjoyed getting to know Josh a little bit through that. We've had a little interaction back and forth on Facebook. I've not met any of these men uh, in real life. And it seems like 2020 is kind of the year to just do everything virtual anyway. So um, we also have Matthew Milioni from Boston. Let's say Boston, Texas. Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> a long way from Texas. And, uh, I, I, uh, became familiar with you through Titus. I think it was just, yeah. um, you and him have done some podcasts together and right. you have a weekly, is that an official podcast or just like a Facebook live, the, the weekly? 
we, we put it out through a lot of channels. I, ha- I have a few different podcasts that I work on. We were doing one here locally, uh, talking the chasm with an atheist friend of mine, Felix. Okay. And then the DKP, we do roughly biweekly every other week. Okay. That's, we put it out Facebook Live, but it goes out on YouTube and a podcast server too. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And then um and then up in the top left corner is Dan Ziegler from St. Cloud, Minnesota. I have not met Dan either, but um he's one of those that there's two things. Um when when I'm on Facebook observing conversations and there's maybe somebody has a thread that's that I'm wincing at and like, ah, oh, this doesn't quite feel right or something. Dan is often a voice I'll notice pop in there with a comment that's like seems to be level headed and, and well well thought through. Um and then I've also, you know, in, in my own posting, there I've got other men in my life that I bounce things off of sometimes, but in Facebook world, you can get hit with all kinds of uh, contenders. And it's, it's always encouraging when there are older men who come on and either affirm or like say something that's kind of similar to where I was going or thinking. And, and Dan has done that a couple of times and I've just kind of grown to appreciate the, uh, I guess sense of direction that you provide on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sorting Facebook out. I'll have it all uh, organized before very long here. Yeah. Do you have a blog or podcast or anything? You should you should start no, one if I, you don't. My blogging world, I I'm pretty active on a discussion board or two, and just try to yeah. occasionally, but uh, and do some some article writing now and again, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I I found I heard about Dan after the cam in Haiti, the the sex scandal, sexual molestation scandal down there. Uh, Dan had a it was just a Facebook status, I think, or a note or something, um, a way forward or something along that line. That was just really, I, I appreciated the the whole focus on restorative reconciliation i forget how you worded it exactly but the concept of like yes justice needs to be done but it also restoration for the victims restoration for the perpetrator um issues like that can be can be very uh inflammatory and and difficult to sort through so anyways i i have watched these men had some back and forth with them and most recently we're nearing the elections. What are we at now? This is the eighth. So less than a month away. And uh, so a lot of conversations about voting and was on a thread. I think it was my brother, Christopher, had a thread about voting. I don't even remember what, what he asked. But I saw Josh and Dan, Matthew respond. And it's a voting is a topic that I have been thinking a lot about myself, um, especially this year. I grew up in a conservative Anabaptist context. As far as my family, my dad was always been a conservative Anabaptist uh, pastor. The reason I say conservative Anabaptist is we've been like Mennonite and then non-denominational and 
now we're BMA. And um, so I don't necessarily always know. I, I visit Lancaster and feel culture shock because I did not grow up in a Mennonite area, um, but theologically very much taught Anabaptist theology and, and have embraced that in my adult years for the most part. So voting has never, never really been something I've, you know, just seemed to make sense. Like Jesus never tells, tells us to go vote and for the return, the rate of return on effort. As you look at Christian, Christian America, who's all into voting, you know, I guess maybe now Roe Roe versus Wade will be overturned, but in all my life, that's been the thing that Christians vote for, and it's still not overturned. Um, and so it just seemed like kind of a no-brainer not to get caught up in that, especially because for me, I w- if I am going to vote, I would want to do it very thoughtfully, not just, I heard somewhere that 80% of voters make a decision on a 30-second commercial or something like that. But this year, especially, I I think probably the whole racial justice conversation has brought it to surface even more. Like, are there, is it a place of privilege for me not to vote, to say I I don't vote? Like, what if I was in a demographic that, um, like, I have friends here in L.A. where voting, like, I could go vote for some laws that would help them out, um, put them a little more on the playing field that I'm at as a, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily that I'm white, but Anabaptists, our network, our connection, um, I, I have many different levels of privilege, um, that I've grown up with and, and experienced now. And so is there a role for, Christians, Jesus calls us to preach and disciple people. He also calls us to do justice. And what does that look like while we're here on earth? Um, so that that's kind of stuff I've been processing. And so I just reached out to these guys and said, hey, they answered on that thread. They answered according to how I feel and my default. I have no plans of going to vote but just to kind of help me think through more of this and and maybe just explore this conversation more as a broader audience i just asked if they'd come on and be be willing to talk about voting and uh i don't know uh, maybe we'll just start this way we can go around in circles or um yeah i'm if if you want to say something just go ahead and say something if somebody's talking and you have something you want to interject before the conversation goes on just raise your hand or something and we'll uh we'll guide the conversation that way but i think to start out with um what has your guys's background been like so let's just go um yeah what's your like have you guys do you guys vote i'm assuming you don't vote um have you voted before yeah, what, what has your guys' background been? Sure, let's start with Dan. Yeah, uh, well, I've never voted. Um, I, I haven't always been conscientious about it. It may be a little bit like you in that regard, Asher. Uh, I grew up in an evangelical church. Um, 
civic duty was kind of woven into our Christian faith and civic duty meant voting and being politically active and uh, uh, there may be a little measure of manifest destiny in there, you know, that America is, is coming together, God's great plan, you know, and um, so I grew up willing to vote. I, when I was 18, I registered to vote because they were encouraging that in high school. I had no reason not to, never got around to it. Um, and uh, a few years after that, I started to discover um, a, a, an approach to uh, theology and the kingdom of God that started to lead me away from the idea of voting. I don't think even then early on, um, I was very strongly convicted, but I, it wasn't too long into my 20s that I, got, I came to the decision that uh, voting for me was something um, that maybe represented a moral compromise, that, that, uh, that I, I, I became what I would call a conscientious abstainer to voting um, because, of, because of my understanding of citizenship and, and the kingdom of God and allegiances and all kinds of things that I'm sure we'll get into in a little while. But so I, I haven't voted uh, yet. Um, could have, but uh, I never, never felt led to do it. So, sorry, I blanked out there for a moment. You say you've never voted, even though you did register? I yeah. registered. Yeah. I, I, I didn't vote, didn't not vote accidentally initially. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not out yeah. of any kind of conscience, but then, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then it, it grew into a, a, a conviction. We'll probably get into this a little bit more, but you mentioned how you, you started seeing that it was a, perhaps a moral compromise. I'm curious if there was like one particular issue that. Yeah. The most concrete issue for me is, um, and this is part of this journey too. Uh, I became a conscientious object, objector um, or, or a, um, uh, bought into the 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 idea of non-resistance or, or uh, uh, that that a Christian can't have any part in war, doing violence to other another one that uh, we're love our enemies, uh, like Paul says, uh, you know, feed, feed them, uh, care for them, um, and uh, and so in a pragmatic sense, it started for me with this very uh, strong reality that how could I uh, vote for the commander in chief of the United States military, or mm. or or the uh, the Congress who declares war, or um, or the, or the sheriff, uh, you know, who who may take uh, have to use violence on my behalf, or um, or the judge who uh, can send somebody to the death penalty. You know, those those yeah. kind of. Now that's that's limited in scope. That doesn't mean I, you know, maybe couldn't vote for the dog catcher or or, or, or vote on whether casinos come into our township or not. But but um, hmm. but for me, pragmatically, it was like you know I I've committed to non-resistance, and it just felt like a moral compromise to me to vote for someone and and to who, whose job it is to carry out um, yeah to carry out. The, the, to carry the sword for the state, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't get to a point where I felt like that was in a fallen world, something that, you know, wasn't ordained to be like Romans says, but, uh, but for, for me as a follower of Jesus, um, 
I, I couldn't square the teachings of Jesus with, with voting in, um, voting for a warrior or, or a violence, uh, a violent. And so that, that was the beginning of the journey for me. I think I've, my uh, understanding has expanded a little bit since then, but that was pragmatically the most concrete trigger. It still is for me the most, you know, when you discuss this thing, anything gets like this kind of gets ragged around the edges, you know, where, where are the edges of these, of, of why we're convicted like we are, but, but the, I feel like the most solid space for me on this conviction has to do with my very strong um, con- conviction that I can't, that I need to love my enemy and I, and, and I can't love my enemy and, and vote in the person who, who may end up killing my enemy. Um, yeah. As a result of my vote. Yeah. Josh, what's your, um, I, our order switched up, but Josh is next in my order now. I mean, uh, I've never voted. Uh, you know, the, my relationship to politics, I have a, uh, it's weird because I have like a lot of warm feelings on the one hand, you know, some people hunt with their dads. Some people go fishing with their dads or play ball with their dads. Me and my dad did politics together. Hmm. And what's really weird about it is uh, we were also very conservative and a Baptist, so our church prohibited voting. But you know, one of my uh, earliest earliest political memories is in uh, 1984, listening with my father to the Mondale Reagan uh, debates, and I was it was impressed upon me at that age uh, of seven, I think I guess I was. You know, I knew who who the right candidate was and who we wanted, you know, elected as mm-hmm. as conservative Anabaptist, even though my dad didn't vote. And then, you know, for the next the next few elections, it was good times uh, for for my dad and I as uh, you know, Reagan was elected and Forrest Bush Sr. Uh, I was, you know, I, I listened with to him with him, uh, you know, for hours to the Clarence Thomas hearings on NPR and being kind of an authority. Joe Biden, interestingly, was a, a character uh, that, that kind of led led in those. So, so I had a kind of a lot of memories like that in the church that I grew up in. We were all, uh, even though we were conservative and Baptist, uh, conscientious objectors. We cheered from the sidelines. So when like Persian Gulf broke out there in the early 90s, I remember uh, one brother brought to school, I went to a little Christian day school at US News and it had a Tomahawk, Tomahawk cruise missile on the cover. And it was just like rapt attention that, that we had for what was going on. And, and Bush made these arguments about babies dying in the hospitals and therefore we need to go into Kuwait. Uh, so you know, fast forward a little bit and I started to say, well, why? Why again don't we vote? I mean, we know who the right candidates are, and we know the good guys are. would help the country be a better place. Uh, you know, let's just go ahead and vote already. So I started kind of chafing a little in the in the church context. Uh, around that same time, I went to Liberty University, and Liberty University, you know, they're not conscientious objectors, and they, uh, you know, Jerry Falwell, of course, the whole moral majority thing, he pretty much invented. I went there from 96 to 2000 and, you know, Newt Gingrich was big and, and Bill Clinton, you know, and because of this philandering, that was still bad at that time to be a president and, and philander. Uh, so he was, you know, he was an evil guy. Rush Limbaugh was really getting to start. Matt Drudge, right, broke that story, the Monica Lewinsky story. 
Uh, and at Liberty, you know, we had Newt Gingrich came, spoke at convocation. Dan Quayle was there. A lot of, you know, a lot of politicians mm. came through. And I was a history major and, you know, really the God and country thing really hit hard. So, so I kind of came out of that ready to really fight the good fight, you know, help bring the kingdom of God on earth as also in heaven. Uh, but uh, sort of like Dan described, it was a little bit accidental that I didn't vote. I fell in love along the way. And uh, the, the lady that is now my wife was from Southern Indiana. So it just so happened in the year 2000, uh, when I would have really been interested in voting, I was like switching addresses and whatnot and the whole end states and the whole registration thing was like a nightmare. So it didn't, didn't happen. And I was only out in Indiana for a few years and I was switching gears again and going to New York. And my son, uh, my firstborn, happened to be born on election day in 2004, uh, November 2nd. So it was just that like whole thing threw things in the works. Uh, by 2008, I, my, you know, a few things had happened. I was now in New York for six or seven years in a history department that didn't reflect the same uh, political perspective that Liberty University did. And uh, over time, uh, the, uh, over the time, I, I realized that, you know what, what I believed about American exceptionalism, what I believed about America being a Christian nation just historically didn't add up. Uh, at all. So I, I grew kind of disenchanted, you know, with, with this notion of, of bringing in God's kingdom. Uh, certainly, you know, along the way, I had brothers at the church there, followers of Jesus, uh, some of you know, Harlan, White, and others that articulated to me uh, uh, what I found to be a compelling kind of Anabaptist vision, this idea uh, that the kingdom of God is a real kingdom I was introduced to John Howard Yoder and some others, and I hate you know, we kind of invoke his name with a little bit of a, a little bit of this. Uh, but uh, his book, politics of Jesus, uh, and you know what he articulated there really started to kind of get me, if you will, in a new way. And you know, by 2010, 2012, I remember there was a brother Matt Alert uh, from the church there. He he stood up in church once and said this and said, you know, if he believed in political solutions, he would vote. And with, of course, the, the interpretation there being that political politics, uh, of the politics of this world did not have the solutions. So, uh, so I kind of came full circle. And you know, now, usually the way I frame it is I advocate for people not to vote. Uh, I have, I think, good Christian brothers that do. Uh, I try to talk them out of it. Uh, Interestingly, my own father, who I used to get in arguments with him, and he would usually say, well, we don't vote for the same reasons, Dan, you had mentioned. No, I, I can't vote for president if I don't go to war. And my dad came up in the Vietnam kind of era, uh, was, a, was in one W service, kind of through that. Uh, so, but along the way, enough listening to the radio preachers, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and now he votes. So when I go home, like I can't even talk about politics anymore with my family like it just explodes uh and so we just don't discuss it uh because i advocate against voting and, and challenge the kind of republican hmm. sort of assumption ideal so i've never voted but interestingly about a month ago i did register and i got a, a mail-in ballot sitting here on my kitchen table i'm planning on voting for biden no i'm just kidding i'm not really <laughs> I'm thinking about writing in Jesus as a matter of protest and as a uh, hmm. sort of uh, political slash off political statement and mailing that in. But I haven't yet decided if, if I'm going to even 
engage in the process at all, but, hmm. but I'm, consi- I'm considering it. Interesting. I, uh, I come from a, a similar background. Of course, for me, my earliest memories are Reagan Dukakis yeah. debates. Uh, I remember watching when I was young and, and the Iran Contra f- hearings yeah, as a little boy had me transfixed. It's crazy. Um, Sorry, just to interrupt you. Like, I don't remember, I, I don't, I don't know the, the other guy, like I know Reagan, <laughs> but I don't know the other guy. Like that's totally foreign to me. You know yeah. what I remember? Let me just interject this. You know, I remember Dukakis also. And you know what I remember is I remember, I knew we were on Reagan's side, but when Dukakis was talking about, uh, about gun control, it made sense to me. He right. said, he said something just like this. He said, he said, well, look, I'm not against, you know, field hunters and this kind of thing. He said, what I'm against is people bring, and this is almost a direct quote, a 38 special to, you know, Saturday night or something like that. I thought, well, well, yeah, that makes sense. What, you know, why are we against that? So, sorry, I just had to interject that there. <laughs> yeah, well, it was the infamous Willie Horton ad that did him in. Yeah. You know, the mercy to a criminal is what destroyed his yeah. campaign. That was so Lee, I, uh, I, grew up- I forget his last name, Lee Atwater. Yeah, I, I grew up in a very politically conservative Baptist home as well, American Baptist. Um, my my grandfather's the the kind of original school of fundamental independent Baptist preachers, going back to J. Frank Norris in Texas and G. V. Vick in in uh, Missouri. Um, so that's that's where I that's how I grew up. I mean. Limbaugh was on the radio every time we were in the car and and I think me in particular of my siblings took to it like a duck to water like it just that was my groove I I I I I had a mind for that so I voted for the last time I voted was the the Bush Gore election and um I was converted right after that election and um, what's interesting to me, so my conversion, you know, I, I had been in a violent street gang before I was converted. And, and one of the things, you know, when I read, like when I look at Acts chapter two and you see how um, the, the, the church's initial response to the Holy Ghost is a reorientation to property, um, My own experience when I was converted is that I had a reorientation to violence and, and there was, it wasn't, it wasn't really to be quite honest. It wasn't volitional. There was something, a part of my life that allowed me, and I think it's a, a mercifully uncommon thing to be really brutal in, in my ability to fight people. It wasn't, it was cultivated. It wasn't innate because I was a middle-class upper middle class kid growing up, but a, a little time on the street in the right circles, I cultivated an appetite for violence. And you have to have something in you to do that on the regular, like not as a defensive posture, but to really be an aggressive, like beat people with your bare hands kind of thing, kick people in the head kind of thing. It's not natural for people to be that way. And it requires kind of an animalism inside of you to be able to do that. And shortly after my conversion, it just wasn't there anymore. In fact, I was one of the first times I knew I was really converted. I was, I happened to be at a party shortly after my conversion. We had kind of bailed on everybody, but we went to go see somebody. And I was, I was still smoking cigarettes back then. I went to go see some old friends and they had a party at their house. 
and some drunk kid disrespected me in a way that like in a flash I had all this like what I was going to do just like I always used to and when the moment came to pounce I just couldn't do it like it wasn't there anymore mm. and so there was just this new kind of me that I didn't I didn't even comprehend I didn't know that was part of the deal but it was and so my whole reorientation around power and violence was was changed by god and 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 as i began to contemplate what all that means there are certain things that just were consequential from that that i didn't even really think about and my abandon on american political process and what that meant left long before my toothium tooth kingdom theology came it was just something that that was the old way and i didn't do it now over the years god's shown me time and time again places where and why these are essential components to proper ways of understanding god and his kingdom and i it's one of my it's it's a really really important issue to me because i think that the way that we think about power is is something Power and wealth and violence are things that we should reorient in Christ. Everyone should. You know, I grew up in the same kind of very God country family. And it it occurred to me at a certain point in reading through the Gospels that these are sacred cows that Jesus decapitates. The disciples don't get to take their context of God, their context of country or their context of family through the threshold of discipleship with them intact. And so... Yeah, it's a it's an issue I'm very very passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that's interesting. I I knew this would happen, but as each of you talk, I have like eight questions for every one of you come up in my head. But um, so, but um, one of the things I guess dovetailing a little bit off of what you you were just talking about, Matthew. But even I just realized as we're talking in general, I didn't mention this to this question to you guys, but um, for listeners, um, there's an assumption that we have talking here. And I would assume, I would hope if, if any listeners from an Anabaptist background, they would have this kind of ingrained as well, but the two kingdom theology and like, what is the kingdom of God and, and where, and so maybe I'll just throw this question at you guys. Like, how would you describe that? Um, what is the kingdom of God and why, what is two kingdom theology? Why does that matter to a, a Christian? Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to kind of clarify that for the sake of the rest of what we're going to talk about. I don't really care who goes first, but Josh, it looks like you have something on your. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a big, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big question. I have a lot of thoughts yeah. about that. Uh, I think what I would advocate for is, uh, you know, to, to try to kind of sum up here in, in a, a short possible answer is, you know, when God created the world and Adam and Eve, he ruled and reigned, you know, in perfection. And he was in fellowship and communion uh, with people and with with creation and when you know sin and satan entered the world you know the powers of darkness uh 
you know, took over and the rule and reign of God was interrupted. I think that's the word that I would use. And, you know, and you see that then, you know, in the prophecies, Isaiah, you know, talks about, uh, you know, a king coming, the government being upon his shoulders, prince of peace, language that's used, uh, talks about the, you know, valleys being exalted, the mountains being brought down for places straight, rough places, plain. Uh, and so when, when, when Jesus comes then, you know, as king, uh, he comes to reestablish the rule and reign of God, you know, as he prayed in, in, uh, in Summer on the Mount on earth as also in heaven. So I think, I think the way I would frame it is that, that Jesus came to found a kingdom. Uh, but, you know, we use this archaic word kingdom. He, another way to think about it is he came to found a country or he came to found a, a nation. Right. And his nation, you know, that he's that he's founded is a is a real nation. I would, you know, I would propose it's a real nation, but it's not a geopolitical state, and it doesn't use you know worldly tools of like uh, Brother Matthew was speaking about their violence and uh, and accumulation of wealth and mm -hmm. and uh, centralization of power and these sorts of things, but instead you know operates on the opposite of that, uh, which is. It's a, you know, it's a kingdom of, it's a kingdom of brotherhood. It's a kingdom where the tools, you know, to wage war or wage resistance, I guess, against evil are suffering love uh, and where, you know, decentralization of power through service. We, you know, we talk about being servant leaders, this kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. so that to me, like when I, when I think of, of the two kingdom concepts, uh, I almost hesitate to say two kingdoms because it sounds like there's these dualistic things and, their left hand working right hand. There's really, in my mind, there's only one kingdom, and right. that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All the rest are like imposters, and right. they're, you know, they're, they're kind of charades that, you know, that that aren't aren't really, uh, you know, people sometimes when I say what I'm about to say, mishear me, I think, but they're not even legitimate. They are, uh, they are kingdoms of this world ruled by the prince of this world, and you know, and therefore. You know, our participation in those, you know, as as voters and in, in the case, you know, in the case of a democracy uh, is is ill advised, I think. And so so it's not you know, I don't think of two kingdoms in a sense that we've got the kingdom of God. And that's the sort of ethereal spiritual kingdom that is just a metaphor. And over here, we've got God's left hand work. And that's, you know, that's a the reality of the kingdom. And. You know, I think if, if we're not careful, the two kingdom thing becomes we're cheering on the sidelines like this is the way I was brought up. Right. Well, we're in this other kingdom, but let's hit him with some Tomahawk cruise missiles uh, and, you know, let's go watch the Blue Angels do their thing at the air show. And let's pray that, you know, uh, you know, Reagan had this thing, peace through strength. And my dad was like a was a proponent. Of that. Yeah. Peace through strength. So. You know, so in my mind, the two kingdoms, the nomenclature is a little less than ideal. I think there's one kingdom and it's the kingdom of God. And then you have these other, you know, these other kind of uh, nation states that use, you know, that are principalities, but that are really ruled by the Isaiah 9 talks about, um, you talked about Isaiah, uh, the, the government will be upon his shoulders. And, uh, and it goes on to say of the extent of his uh, of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Uh, it's it's this idea in my mind that, that ultimately Jesus is is his agenda is to reestablish that which was broken at the beginning that you said, uh, Joshua, and uh, and and that that is going to be 
ultimately um, uh, uh, total. You know that that that, that Jesus uh, uh, was it um, in First Corinthians uh, eleven. It says um, Scripture says that that it, un, until every principality, every power, every authority is brought under His feet, uh, you know He's He's going to remain at work. Um, Revelation, it says, um, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, you know, that, uh, that there's an agenda here that is, that is moving. And, uh, and that's, yeah, this is not, yeah, this is, and it's, it's, a, it's an already, was it, uh, so I call it an already, but not yet kingdom, you know, that, that the kingdom began and broke in uh, with the coming of Christ. Uh, it was a kingdom that had been established from the beginning of all time, but uh, but that is as as Christ and His agenda and the work of Jesus moves forward, that's uh, you know that's that's where the kingdom of God is. And and uh, I go on, go further to say I don't I don't think I don't believe in dual citizenship either. Um, right. I, I think I think you know we who are part of the the kingdom of God are part of something that doesn't have political boundaries, doesn't have the geo, you know, where we don't have, we're, we're not fighting for turf. We're not fighting for wealth. We're not fighting for family, you know, to latch onto what uh, Matthew said there. Um, but that we're a part of, uh, we're a part of this transcendent kingdom that's, uh, that's moving forward. And, and that's the agenda that we're, uh, we're latched onto it puts us in the role of ambassador uh bible talks about being strangers and aliens you know there's a we're here we're speaking to what's going on we're we're, we're representing god's perspective like an ambassador would do uh the apostle paul uses those terms but we're um our, our citizenship is with our homeland i maybe i don't want to, i don't want i don't want to take away from matthew here i just want to throw this in yet and i'm i'm currently kind of working this out in my own in my own thinking but uh and so dan you and, and i just have to assume matthew's older than me too you guys can you guys can set me straight here if i go off but i i'm inclined to believe you know when jesus came as king uh herod was really threatened by that right he was you know where is this king right. uh and then later you know caesar was really threatened by by the kingdom of god so I think there's, you know, we're we're ambassadors, and and I buy that that metaphor for sure. But there's a sense in which I think the kingdom of God actually poses an an existential threat to the kingdoms of this world. And there's a sense in which, when the kingdom of God is really growing and advancing, the kingdoms of this world are are diminishing and are losing kind of power. And if you know, if 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 the kingdom of God poses no threat to the kingdom of this world, in my mind, you know, what sort of kingdom do we even have? It is, you know, it just, so, so I'm throwing that out there, you know, r rather than them living in perfect harmony, I, I feel like there's actually a tension or, uh, or perhaps even a competition, if you will, between, you know, between the two kingdoms. And can I interject here and throw this question in? Like, I think one of, uh, at least, this is something that I've thought about at sometimes um, we, when it comes to politics, we don't participate in politics, but we participate in everything else 
in life, right? We that's an argument that I've seen. Like we you you don't not go to work or you don't not pay your taxes and so forth. Um but is it true that as a as a citizen of God's kingdom, the tension you're talking about, Josh, ought to be felt in probably every dynamic of life. Like that how I move about through life not so much that we don't do these things, but like I, I function in a different way. Does that make sense? And is that true? Is it? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, well, so there's a couple ways to look at that. I, the political reality of the kingdom of God is, is, is like the beginning. Like that's the entrance to this whole ideology and how you unpack it is like this notion is pretty radical that Jesus and, and I think it's something that a, a lot of the reform tradition has has lost a grip on. It, it seems like from the Protestant Reformation and even from the Latin, the Latin perspective is bringing the kingdom of God through the, the domain of power. Yeah. But in the Protestant worldview, it's more like the constitution of the future kingdom, like someday the ethereal kingdom is going to come here and then we'll all do our Jesus thing with him. The idea that Jesus is creating, and I, I would tend to agree with Josh, a rival kingdom, because it's a rival because it's, it's a rival for people's allegiance and affection and devotion and resources and all those things. That, that, that has consequences across a lot of different domains. It has consequences in how we, how, what, our, what our weapons are, what our warfare is like what our affections are like, what our allegiances are to, the people that we attract our attention to. And, and in all of those ways, they should be mirroring what Jesus was doing because we're the body of Christ on earth, right? So if his impulse is to be drawn to the weak and not the dominant and the strong, if his impulse is to care for the, the sick and not to vaunt the well, all of those things should be the impulse of us as well, that we should be attracted to weakness, not power. Uh, another one of those responses that comes from the Holy Spirit. So that has its impact on how I deal with a homeless person on the street, how I deal with my, my, my economic resources, what I do with my time, how I think of all the things that are happening around me. Now, I do think it's wrong to assume that two kingdom people are passive spectators we're not because if if the kingdom of god is a real and a controversial and a competitive entity in the world then then we have something to say about what's happening around us and in in this concept of the kingdom of god we should be looking at what it means to be the people of god because that's one of the mm -hmm. consequences of of looking at jesus as a king is that he's making a people and a domain and a law and and all these policies and and the things that we should be occupying and doing and in that interest we have lots of political ambitions we, i mean the highest political ambitions utopian really to fix mm -hmm. the world at least within our borders that the people of God should be acting like God intended human society to be like. Sure. So you can imagine yeah. there's lots of consequences from that, those principles. I think what really the, the question that, that is at the heart of all this though, is why are those things in competition? Like where, where I think that people really struggle is 
is it a false dilemma to say that if all those things are true, because I don't have a hard time selling people on, on that idea. Most sincere Christians will buy that hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, the kingdom of God. Yeah, care for the poor. Yeah, love the weak. Yeah, all this stuff. That's easy sell to anybody who's an earnest Christian. But what's a hard sell is why then does that make a, a conflict with something like participation in the civil structures. And that's where I feel like we haven't done, at least on uh, on the two kingdom side of things, we haven't done a really good job of articulating, especially to our young men and women, why those, those interests are in competition. And I think what it comes down to is that how does power work and operate? I keep coming back to this. Uh, it's not always my soapbox, but how are we utilizing what power we have in the world? And the, the, I call it the mythology of democracy looks at power in a certain way. And all of us kind of ride the lightning. All of us get on board with our collective power and, and we force, we make something happen. We impose the will of the masses on whoever isn't consenting. And that's really where the rub is with the kingdom of God from my perspective. Yeah, that, you know, that specific thought you just uttered uh, came home to me in a new way. I don't know if you ever heard uh, Stanley Harawas has a, had a, like a four minute video on voting. And the point that you made is one he, I think I saw this maybe 2012 or 13. And he made the point voting in itself is a coercive act. Right. At the end of the day. And that's, you know, that's where the, that's where the rub is. So there's two, the, the way I try to articulate it is there's two major problems with, with the mythology of democracy. Well, maybe three. The, the most ethereal one is that it, it poses two premises. One, that the state is a savior, that we're going to fix things through the mechanisms of state, which, okay, well, maybe it's utilitarian or pragmatic, but we know, like, of all things we know now in this election with all the racial tension that we have, like our impulse would be to side with the more liberal faction in the, in the behest of, of ethnic minorities and those who are disadvantaged because that's kind of part of their platform. But we have a representative of law enforcement as the VP. Like, how does that make sense? Like the party that's supposed to care about this nominates a DA, like the problem literally the problem with the whole system is who's going to run it. And now we're supposed to like that kind of scenario happens over and over and over again. So you have to really stretch your notions of pragmatism to be able to get squeak anything noble out of that to begin with. So there's this idea of, of like pragmatic, uh, maybe we can help something that just never delivers. Same with the other side with the, with the Supreme court and, and, and how we're going to get these judges that are going to fix the world. And there's all kinds of problems with that. So this state is savior and, and the utility of redemptive violence is the ethereal problem with the mythology of divorce. But then the other problem is that, <coughs> excuse me, the other problem is that it makes me a, an operator of coercion. You know, right. that's a huge liability mm -hmm. because what what is at the bottom of every initiative that's voted on is the sword of the state like i don't care what what you're talking about what it comes down to 
is the government using force because that's why the government exists the way it does. It's coercion is its mechanism. That's what is, that's the crux of state power is coercive force. And, crux and is I, a great word to use there. What's that? Crux, crux yeah. is a great word to use there. Right. So, so partaking in that, well, I'm really laying my hand on the sword of state when I put my hand on a ballot box. And, you know, for people that are interested in that idea, you know, the politics of Jesus is fantastic. Lysander Spooner has some stuff that's fantastic. And then the third problem is that we we often so, OK, now we're not going to vote for the we're not going to vote for the commander in chief because we don't trust their wars. We're not going to vote for big national policies because they're so coercive. But uh, and 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 anything that has to do with taxes is intrinsically connected to force and and confiscation. Okay, but what about moral principles? That's the third hook for the religious people: is that doma or abortion or whatever the case is. And it sounds even to me kind of like a weak argument to say, well, it never really happens because that just makes me a pragmatist. Well, we never really get our SCOTUS that's going to ban abortion and whatever the case may be. Like, if I don't get my way, then I don't play with that system. But if I could, then I would. But that's not really the problem. The problem is that, as I see it, there are certain things that we don't get to vote on. Like, because I believe that certain things are objective truths, I believe that God made the world according to certain moral and philosophical principles, that they're just unalienable these are the real unalienable truths is that God made the creation and it, he made it to work and not work along certain principles. So I say it this way. The analogy I draw is this. If Senator Warren introduces a bill tomorrow where she's going to ban gravity and all of us who are creationists, who believe in, in the order of the natural world, we get enraged and there is no way she's going to ban gravity. I'm going to be at the Walmart getting people to sign the petition. I'm going to get out the vote. I'm going to get as many people as I can to show up and make sure that Senator Warren doesn't ban gravity. Well, if you do that, you're insane. Like all you have to do to prove gravity is drop a rock. I win. I don't care what they do. I don't care how many laws they pass against gravity. Gravity is, and marriage is, and and life is. I don't have those things. Don't get to be up for a vote because they already are. Now, what happens in a system that doesn't recognize those truths? If you play in that system, it's no different than playing a. Oh no about banning gravity you just doesn't work it doesn't if you want to if you want to defend marriage here i'll tell you how i defend marriage i go out with my family people see a mm. husband and a wife and children that's my defense of marriage act <laughs> what yeah. do you matthew I, I listen man you said it so well uh i gotta give it to you and you know you i really appreciate what you what you broke down there but what, what about somebody that says, yes, to everything you said, yes, there's, you know, natural law, if you will, uh, and that's maybe even what the Enlightenment people were hinting at, hinting around it. Uh, but, you know, but there's this idea of, of protection, right? So, right. so, yes, it's wrong to, you know, hurt children or, or you know, these sorts of things, 
and and no matter what they do, you know, they if they legalize this or that, you know, they they're going to find their end punishment in themselves. But what about protecting the innocent? Like we need some, you know, some coercive state to protect the children. You know, even though everybody knows it's wrong, and you can go out with your family, right. you, you know. Well, well I, I do believe the state has a protective function. I, I do believe that they don't bear a sword in vain. I, I, the civil structure has a utility. And that's a whole side conversation. But my participation in it is the question. Like, I mean, Michael Sattler's, def, his whole issue with, I'd rather fight with an honest Turk than a dishonest Christian. Like, that's what's at stake at the... at with the kingdom ethos is do I have better tools? And that's going all the way back mm -hmm. to my first point of redemptive, the, the utility of redemptive violence and whether or not the state is actually a savior or if they're just holding back the flood, I think they're holding back the flood, but they don't have hope. And, and this is, you know, you can point this out. There's it's demonstrable all over the place. Look at the same people like, Falwell's at the, he institutes the moral majority in whenever 82, 78, whenever it was. And now his boy is, is, is a Trump fanboy. Like the degradation of that, the degradation, like it's a Republican Supreme Court, dominant Supreme Court that, in, that sets up Roe versus Wade in the first place. Like all these things are failure after failure after failure. And it's mm -hmm. like, the, the evangelical church in America is like the eternal Charlie Brown kicking Lucy's football. They never get it that it's not going to be there. They never get it that it's always going to be pulled away, that they're just being manipulated as a way to control this voting block. That's all it is. Now, that's a pragmatic response, but there's all kinds of places where you can point out that the futility and hopelessness of this state is savior principle. Now, the other the other part to that is that what 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 are our tools? What do we have as our resource? And this is where I think it really tries the saints, because do we have our confidence in the power of the cross? And that's an ugly power to hold on to. Like it's visceral and bloody and painful and gross. But what does it mean? Is suffering love really what's going to change yeah. the world or is or is manipulating power going to mm. change the world? Mm. And that, I think, proves people's discipleship. Yeah. It's wow. the tools. It, it, you're saying, I think, that the, the tools of the state, the tools of coercion um, are not the tools that the kingdom of God advances with. It, the, Paul gives uh, credence to the state the way I see it is the state keeps order in a fallen world right. uh, while the kingdom of God advances. The state is not advancing the kingdom of God. If, if nothing, if anything, it's, it's, uh, it's keeping peace. It's, uh, you're supposed to be anyway. It's, it's, it's helping to keep order in a world that's, uh, that's fallen, but it's not, uh, if we latch onto the state or try to harness it uh, to advance God's, uh, the, the agenda of Christ, we end up, we end up compromised. Right. And the so, kingdom of God doesn't advance. In fact, what we're doing is feeding the state with more power. Right. And that power in the end is antithetical to the power of Jesus because, because mm. ultimately Jesus, uh, Tony Evans, I, I just, uh, I didn't hear what he said aside from this quote. He said, he said, Jesus didn't come to take, take sides. He came to take over. Um, right. 
you know, you know, the idea that um, that Christ ultimately, if 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 we really believe that Jesus is going to reign supreme, then Jesus is the threat to the state. That's right back to what you right. said, Josh, that uh, mm. that the state is in competition for authority. It is it is in the Bible called it's called powers and principalities. And you know, we I grew up in the evangelical church. We kind of made all that spiritual warfare you know well it's more than spiritual warfare those powers and principalities are the power structures of of today their wealth their their uh, their oppression their greed their you know the marshalling of coercion um and and that's not the way the kingdom of god which is an upside down kingdom is going to advance so um this this is a part of the conversation that I would, I thought maybe we'd get to at the end, but this is, so this, like, this is something that I've really been processing that I feel like, I, I just wonder how many of my peers, young Anabaptists, even who are 30 years old, um, have processed what I'm hearing you guys inviting us to process. And that is, do we have a theology of suffering? Do we have like, have we, have we literally um, wrestled with the, the implications of joining Jesus, how that's going to affect my life physically? Like right. it literally, because for me, I mean, that's the, that's the main arguments that we're seeing people vote for, Trump because the the Marxists are coming they're going to take over and and yeah like there is this thing inside of me that feels more comfortable with a strong capitalist democracy than a Marxist but the invitation that I see in scripture is that that's not what I'm supposed to be concerned about that I worship with my body of believers, whether I'm going to get fined for it or not, that I um, am making disciples and, and leading people in the gospel, whether that gets me, you know, thrown in prison, that I teach um, marriage as laid out by God in scripture. Um, right. you, you know, even if I lose my, I don't have a, a pastoral license but even if i lose my pastoral license like those I'm, I'm trying to think of specific examples that we face here in california or wherever like do we have a theology of embracing like we will suffer and is that why so many people kind of we see even people who would come from non-political backgrounds are shifting to to getting into politics i i think it really is and I've been disheartened, I think, in our circles, how little real thought goes into the to the cross. I don't know. I think it's been abandoned in a few dirty alleys. Like we left it with the Romans and their crucifixes, and then we left it with cheap grace and sinners' prayers and and penal substitution. But what the cross is, is we really should invest a lot of our meditation and thought on what the cross is. The cross is confrontation. It's culmination. It's the meeting point. It's the literal X marks the spot. It's the center of everything. It's the center of God's plan. And it's not just the center. 
it's the crashing together. Like the graphics of it are poignantly beautiful that literally like horizontal and vertical converge, like things running opposite directions run into each other. Sin and holiness, man and God, life and death, all that God is doing has us fixed on this one point in time. And we should, it's supposed to draw our attention. It's supposed to draw our affection and, and, and our energy. Like, what is God trying to say to us at the cross? It, it, it has to be, it has to be for the followers of Jesus that that's the place where we fix our hope and all, everything that we aspire for. Like, to follow the master, like, who is it? Polycarp says, on the way to his martyrdom, now I begin to be a disciple. That, that if we if you signed up to follow Jesus, you signed up to follow the cross. Mm. And I don't mean like on a on an emblem on a flag. I mean the cross. I mean the place of pain and suffering. And that doesn't sell well to me or to anybody. But what makes it palatable is to see who was on it and what he accomplished. And when you are participatory in those things that Jesus does in the cross, it makes you want to be a part of it in spite of the cost to go along. Hmm. And so I think you're exactly right that when I see people embracing Trumpism or embracing liberalism, whatever the case may be, it's always at the avoidance of a cross. I don't Hmm. want to climb up there. I don't want to suffer. I don't want pain. I'm not saying that's everything but it's a lot of it. And if we could just get rid of that much of it, I think we could have a lot more honest conversations about what to do with what's left. Hmm. The, uh, I don't know, Matthew, have you read uh, Boys of Cruciform, Cruciform Hermeneutic? I, I haven't yet, but I'm, I'm a little familiar with the concepts. Yeah, those echoes there. You know, I, I think, you know, to me, I was going to touch back on this, you know, I don't. I'm not. I don't necessarily disagree. Uh, you know, with the assessment there, Matthew, you had given to Dan about you know the utility of of the state's violence. But uh, I think I think what I would advocate for is that you know, and this is I'm trying to hook it here to what you just said, is that as you know, citizens of the kingdom of God, we have superior weapons, right, and you know, the truth is, is that, uh, that our weapons are more effective at waging war on evil and violence and, and are more redemptive and are more, uh, they bring, you know, more of a salvific component, if you will, uh, to society than do, you know, the best progressive, you know, democracy that, you know, that that's run as efficiently as, as possible, you know, that you can imagine. And so, so to me, you know, that's, that's, you know, part and parcel then of the good news, you know, uh, in the, in the worldly kingdoms, you know, if you have a strong economy and you can buy the big guns and the fancy missiles and the space force and these things, you know, that's considered good news. You know what, we are, we have peace through strength, but, you know, part of the power of the message of Jesus is that actually you can fight evil more effectively and, and you don't need a lot of money and you don't need M16s and F16s. We fight it through the cross, like you mentioned, through, you know, the Bible talks about Jesus, you know, Hebrews being our forerunner. 
and he, you know, he he demonstrated for us by absorbing the hate, by absorbing the evil, by absorbing the sin, you know, with his very body on the cross, and in doing so, uh, achieve, you know, immortality, resurrection from the dead, and and that's what he invites us into, you know, that same kind of level of suffering, love, that same, you know, work of redemption uh, in the world as his follower. And also, you know, then to have the hope of the resurrection. So what you're saying, I think, about the cross, you know, to me is is very inspiring. It's very compelling because it's in, you know, it's in that work. And Jesus himself, you know, this is not new taught, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And he invites us into that. Um, but it's something very different from the way the kingdoms of this world, you know, work and frame, uh, you know, and, and frame salvation. And it's it's counterintuitive. We we constantly underestimate it. Um, we 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 don't we 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 go to concrete power, to corporal power, to to uh, coercive power because our, our instinct says that's the way to get things done, you know. Um, and and not remembering that the the, the cross uh, changed his changed the course of history. Uh, you know, that, uh, that, that the ultimate act of suffering, um, turned, turned the world on its end. And I just think we, I just think we don't remember that we don't have faith to, to, to hold on to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting when I was a principal in New York, I had this mentor, Jewish atheist, incidentally, his name was Charlie. And I got to be really good friends with him. And he he had a lot of wisdom, uh, even though he wasn't a follower of Jesus. We had many, many conversations about, about Jesus. But uh, one of the things he pushed me on is that even though this was part of, this was in circa 2008, 2009, while I was kind of transitioning into this, this kingdom thinking, but he used to push me on because I had, uh, you know, I had this thing where, all right, I've got this school in the inner city, Brooklyn, and I need to like run a tight ship. And that means like a lot of discipline, you know, for these city kids. And he used to tell me, Josh, he said, let me just tell you what you believe. You believe in obey or suffer. If a kid doesn't do what you want, you, you torture them a little. If they don't do it again, you torture them more. And your thinking is that that's going to get you the culture that you want in your school. And he would say, it's not going to. That system, you know, doesn't work. This obey or suffer thing is, is not, you know, is not something that's going to, uh, Going to ultimately get you the culture that you want at uh, Peter Arts High School, which is where I was at that time. I never forgot that, and you know, it, it really kind of registered with me. And even today, now when I speak with my teachers at Effort of Mennonite, I challenge them with that. You know, that's this obey or suffer thing is really a, a law or kingdoms. Of, it's, it's sort of a combination of Old Testament law, but it's the way uh, I think the kingdoms of the world operate. And I contrast that with you know Jesus when Jesus came. People were amazed because he had a power or authority, but the Bible says not as the scribes or not as the people with the positional power in society. And to me, you know, that's what that's what I would aspire to. That same power that Jesus had didn't come from coercive power or positional power. It came out of who he was, out of his moral authority and out of his capacity to suffer and to serve. So, you know, to me, it's just such a, uh, you know, it's, it's such a startling, you know, idea. And it's, it's not just a, a woe is me, let me lay my life down, but it's the way to win. And it's the way to, you know, to really exercise influence, uh, you know, with a, uh, you know, with a, with a salvation component 
on society, you know, as as we're building up the kingdom of God. So, mm-hmm. so really, I, really I, I think the reason that. people aren't embracing. So I, when I look around, especially conservative and baptism, I get really frustrated at people's abandoning of our our birthright, our, our real tools, our opportunities in the kingdom of God. And it's frustrating to see people getting on the Trump bandwagon. Somebody said on, on, on our group, um, they heard somebody saying, I, I don't, uh, I don't vote, but I pray Republican. I, I see that stuff. And it just like, Oh, just, it, it eats me because, because it's an abandonment of what, what God wants to do in the world. But the reason people do it, it's people aren't irrational. They do things for reason. The, the reason that people are abandoning, even in conservative and Baptist circles, are abandoning the power of the cross is because they don't see the power of the cross. They don't mm-hmm. see a li- They don't see lives being changed. They don't mm-hmm. see prayer having an effect in the world. They don't see people giving of themselves in sacrificial, losing ways in order to help change the world around them they don't see evil overcome with good they're not seeing any of those things so you grow up in these circles mm-hmm. you spend 20 years 30 years maybe just going off of what everybody else around you is doing and you've kind of come out of the fog and you're like i think i'll i think i'd rather vote i, I think i'd rather do something that feels like it has an appreciable effect in the world mm-hmm. and that's on us that's I mean, that's our fault, not yeah. anybody else's. And is it kind of, I mean, just to take that a little deeper, like we, we function in our churches sometimes out of similar power struggles that the right. world would. Right. If it's good enough for the church, it's good enough for the ballot box. Like if we're going to use those mm. methods of, you know, bullying people around and coercing people and forcing people or intimidating people or manipulating people, then why not? If that's how mm-hmm. we play the game, then let's play the game. There ought to be something different. I'd be, uh, I'm not the host here, but I'd be interested. Maybe you're going to take us there, Asher, in addressing, you know, you mentioned some of the, like you started, I think, in the opening there, you know, with, you know, sometimes feeling, well, the only reason I can afford not to vote is, you know, yeah. from white privilege. Yeah. Exploring a little bit, you know, some of what I think are the most compelling arguments, you know, for voting that that I've heard and and seeing what, you know, people's responses are. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to go there next. Um, Just to to touch on that. I forget now because I talked with you guys about it before we hit recording. So I forget what all we said in the recording. But um, for myself, the voting was kind of a no brainer to not vote. Um, until more recent years where I've begun to see, like I would have used to have a view of the end goal being that we're all kind of helicoptered out of earth and we go to heaven and there's, there's a new world or place that I hadn't ever really had a clear picture of what it's going to be like. And there's like, there's, I'm not going to try to, define what that's going to be like but there's not a whole lot of language that would indicate that in scripture it's more there's there's a new creation a new jerusalem um and and if anything a picture of god coming back to creation back to earth and so salvation i've come to see salvation as you know we were made in the image of god and commissioned to rule and reign rule and reign according to the image of god mankind rebelled 
and decide to rule and reign according to their own wisdom, what we perceive as good and evil. And so then, long story short, Jesus comes the image of God and shows us how to rule and reign again as God designed. And now salvation is learning how to rule and reign, how to live out as God originally designed. And how does that, like, is there a place, is there a role when we as Christians who are being transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the, as we gaze on the glory of, of God, um, is there a role in a Babylon? We see Daniel and Esther who are these, there's not a lot of detail or, or even explanation as to why we have these stories in scripture, but they're showing God fearers functioning in state positions, um, nudging their leaders to, to wisdom and to, to function according to God's design where, where they can. And is, is voting a way like, so for myself, I look at a lot of evangelicals and they're obsessed. Like they don't want to lose this freedom to vote. And for me, if I have a posture, this is what I'm processing. If I have a posture that like, you know, I may not have this right one day and that's okay. Like I'm still called to follow Jesus. I'm not dependent on the freedom. But if I have this freedom to vote, is this a way? And particularly like I don't see any compelling reason to vote for a person. Um, that is really, there's just, and we've touched on some of it already, but what about laws? Like um, especially local laws that where I know there's, there's two, there's a decision being made and one would favor the vulnerable. One would favor the, the wealthier, the, the ones already protected or something is voting on that law a way that I, as a, as a God-fearer, Jesus follower, can nudge my leaders towards the way of God? Um, that, that's, that's something that I've wrestled. I have a few thoughts that I'm assuming you guys are, are probably going to mention your, yourselves, but maybe I'll wrap it up, that part of the conversation up if you don't. But I'm curious what your guys' response are to that. You're saying one of the arguments is that by voting, we are, it, it's one of the ways we can be salt and light. We can add a little, yeah. a little pinch of salt to the judge. We, we who are enlightened to the way of Jesus, to the, to the justice, the upside down kingdom of, of, of Jesus can, can contribute in a small way to the world by, uh, by speaking to his justice through whatever means we can be, be yeah. Be it uh, casting a vote. I, that's the most common question I hear. You know what? The, the, it's the what if question. What if all the Christians who uh, you know who are followers of Jesus uh, don't vote? You know uh, it, that we're, we're going to leave the whole system to unbelievers. You know that's the that's the argument that I hear most often. You know what? What do we get if we, if, if if all of a sudden we all abstain because we're supposed to be the the enlightened ones who understand uh, who understand the will of God, and and now that's empty from the from the public uh, sphere. Just to throw this in there, it's it's interesting how I mean Kenya is having I don't know how, how if you guys have much interaction with that, but they're having tremendous revival in Kenya, parts of Africa, um, even uh, 
Myanmar? No, not Myanmar. Um, Malaysia, I think it is. Um, and so history shows like areas where where there's Marxism or you know where where Christian like the government is completely Christians are out of the scene. There's actually some like that's when there's often revival in the church. That's not entirely sure. That's not entirely true all the time because there are places where Christianity has gone extinct, but um, that's another conversation for another. The story that I grew up hearing is that it's because of Christian involvement in the political process that we have the prosperity, the peace, Hmm. justice, the relative ethics, uh, the Judeo-Christian values. That's the, that's the story. And, and, and if it wouldn't have been for, the faith of the founding fathers of the, you know, I, and I, I know there's, but this is the, this is the backdrop to this yeah. thing. How, how can Christians not participate in something that, uh, and, and leave their neighbors to, to wallow in this, um, in this system that's devoid of Christ's fingerprints at all. I'm being the devil's advocate here. I asked I asked the question a, a few different ways, like a, a, a more poignant case to me, because I don't think we we deal. I mean, maybe with the penal system, we get close to something relevant for for the oppressed um, police reform. But that's usually much more on a very local level. And that's the kind of thing that I think is the most touches the closest to to something that seems like a Christian concern within the system. But if you reverse back and you think about more like the Freedom Riders or suffrage in the South for African-Americans, that feels like a lot more meaningful, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a real injustice to be addressed that that seems like it can be remedied through the process. There's an interesting... Uh, I, I don't have complete answers to that. I, I think that... I struggle with the tension between those things. I think uh, obviously a world like America where, where African-Americans have suffrage is better than a world where they don't. It's a more, it's a better place to be for everybody. But what, 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 what expense do we do that? How do, how do we, how do we, how would we have partaken in that? What I, what I think I come to in those real cases of a potential change is that I look at how Jesus is dealing with the social issues of his day. And, and it's easy for me to sympathize with a notion like tax the rich and feed the poor, but that's not the kind of system that Jesus institutes. He institutes you go and feed the poor. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. It's not just for the poor sake. It's also because I can't like the mythology of democracy allows me to defer my both my civil responsibilities and my human responsibilities to a collective purpose instead of actually taking them for myself. I could pass a law where it's illegal to throw trash in the neighborhood or I could go out and pick up trash in the neighborhood. Well, the difference between those two things I mean, even if the result is the same, is that one is going to affect me, the, the potential voter, and one is not. 
And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. And what he's really trying to remedy is not the poor, because he's, he tells us the poor you always have with you. He's not trying to actually eliminate poverty in the world, at least not in that regard. What he's trying to do is make us care about the poor, which is much more important because if there's an, a resolution to poverty on earth, it's that people really care about the poor, not just that you redistribute wealth in a way that people don't have needs. Because, because we see in America, of all places, that that access to resource isn't always the only cause of poverty. Addiction is a cause of poverty. You know, all kinds of things are a cause of poverty. And if you don't care about the person who's experiencing poverty, you just want to eliminate the problem, then you don't get, you don't get the problem solved. And so I think that's a core of what the kingdom is supposed to be doing is not just changing the outcomes around us, but changing the people that are going to produce the outcomes. And you don't get that through that process. I think, you know, to go to your scenario, Asher, uh, I, I agree with what Matthew said. I think you said it well, but not disagreeing with that. Uh, I forget, maybe it was you, Asher, that says someone said something about not voting for a person. Uh, you know, depending that, you know, I, I think I can I can think of scenarios where I would vote if I felt like my vote really was merely a, a way for me to voice my thoughts on something like, for instance, if, if, uh, if, you know, they were to put up some sort of, you know, uh, a democratic referendum on, you know, whether or not we should invade this or that country, uh, you know, or respond, you know, with, uh, you know, violence, you know, in some way, you know, so, you know, in a situation perhaps like that, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, a referendum on, on some other, you know, issue where, you know, really, I feel like people are, are you know, are, are collecting the opportunity to hear people's voices. Uh, in a situation like that, I might, I might weigh in uh, on, you know, on something like that. Perhaps it's a death penalty would be another example that comes to mind. Uh, so I, I don't know that I would say absolutely not, uh, you know, that, that I would never, never participate. I have a lot more hesitancy, uh, in, you know, in, in participating in a way that, that feels like it, it's too close. I know this is, is muddy, but too close to the coercive, uh, kind of, you know, keys of the state. If it's a poll, I guess, uh, to say it that way you know, then, then perhaps. I, I feel like my hesitation with that, like say if we were going to decide in Massachusetts, whether to ban the death penalty. Yeah. That, that's something that I could get behind, right? Like morally, yeah. that's something that would be important to me. But, but if I, but my fear is that if I lend my credibility to that system and then the death penalty is continued, that I helped make that decision. I contributed to the process that lends that whole system its credibility. By, like by, even by we've decided, we all decided. The people of Massachusetts decided capital punishment's good, and and I was a part of the process that came to that decision. What did you yeah, say, Dan? My biggest, I've, I've left open the possibility of voting on an, on an issue, um, voting on a person. I struggle like you do, Asher, with that idea, or or or, or bigger yet, voting for a party. Mm. You know, 
Um, one of the biggest reasons I, I said it earlier, you know, that non-resistance was was kind of uh, where I started in this non-voting journey. Um, almost as important as that to me now is seeing the effect that voting has on those who participate in the system. So, you know, Matthew, you mm -hmm. talked about, you know, coercion and, and participating in something. Uh, uh, Josh, you, you did a good job at explaining the idea of, of the tools, you know, that, 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 that the coercive system represents. But, but go the other direction and the effect that voting has on us uh, right. dangerous. I, I, I guess I can't say it any further. I Not voting for me, uh, and I'm very observant of what's going on in the world. I feel like part, mm. part of my calling as a Christian is to know where suffering is, to understand, to empathize, you know, that, that type of thing. But I guard my independence because I know how quickly I could be sucked into one side mm. or the other based on a cause, like an abortion or, or, or immigrant justice or whatever, whatever the cause might be that comes right out of who I am as a Christian. Um, but I watch people get sucked in and, 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 and pulled in and it, 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 it's deeply bound up in who we are as people. God made us, uh, I'm convinced to be social, social beings. We, 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 you know, drop me out in, um, in the forest of Alaska and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll probably die and, you know, be gone in, in, in a month, you know, or whatever, just, I'll maybe find some little thing, berries to eat, but it, I'd be done. Drop me in the forest of Alaska with about five, six, seven, eight other people. And, and you know, we got a shot because, because we, we're made to be social. We're made to, and, and we know that we're stronger together. But um, I guess where I'm going is that drive within us, uh, not just to vote a uh, an issue or to vote a party, but to vote an identity, all of a sudden we start to take on the identity of the party or the team that we become a part of. And, and team is a good way of thinking about it. I, I, I mean, look, look at sports, you know, what, what is, what is sports? Sports is picking a team uh, to root for nothing out here. They're pushing a ball up and down the field. Uh, a, a guy from, um, uh, 538, I think the website did a, did some research a few years ago. He studied 49, 50 violent incidents related to sports. Thousands of people injured, people were killed, riots. You've seen some of the some of the videos of of, of, of riots in sporting stadiums where people are thrown off the stands. You know that type of thing. What's going on there? We're talking about pushing a ball up and down the field, but what happens is, I think, is we become a part of a team, we begin to identify with that team and strong forces in our, in our being start to start to kind of see the world from the perspective of that, of that team. And, and I, I can see it so clearly in this election as people start to open the door to, to, to rooting for a side, you know, that, well, this is the more righteous side. I, and I don't honestly believe either side is more righteous than the other. There's there's issues on one side or another that I might resonate with that I find echoed in the teachings of Jesus. But um, mm -hmm. but I see how people are sucked into um, are, are are sucked into the identity of that tribe that that political tribe, and all of a sudden that political tribe um, starts to define them. 
Uh, there was a, a book called Amazing Grace uh, a number of years ago where, where they did a major study and, and studied political involvement in Christ, Christ, and, and, and particularly among Christians. And, and after kind of looking at the involvement level and the passion uh, for politics and the positions of people, the, the, uh, the authors concluded that uh, people form their faith around their politics and not the other way around. You know, it's, it's the old, uh, what, what Will Rogers used to say, you know, it, mixing politics and religion is like mixing uh, manure and ice cream. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the ice cream doesn't harm the manure a whole lot, but, but, but the manure totally ruins the ice cream. You know, the, we, uh, I, I just fear for how, and I just knowing my own weakness, how political involvement and particularly picking a side would start to change me. And I, and I, I see what, um, uh, what the Apostle Paul talks about in not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And is there any other pattern of this world more pre prevalent and more powerful than political ideology? And, and yet we're being called not to conform to the patterns of these, this world. Um, mm. I don't see I don't see any political ideology that comes near to the upside down kingdom of Christ. If it, if it didn't, wouldn't be held political very long. Um, mm -hmm. But but I just that I guess that's one of my major. Even if even if there's a way to righteously vote, um, mm -hmm. what would it do to me? And 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 what does that absence of that firewall mean to the way I start to look and at the world, understand mm -hmm. the world? There's another question about suffrage in general. There's a there's a neat little book called Electing Not to Vote. It's a series of of, um, of essays. I think six or seven essays. And one of them was actually written by an African American woman, and and she makes a claim that that there were a lot of social improvements happening in the African American community in the civil rights struggle, and there's a way to view suffrage as the quelling of dissent. There's another analogy of it that happened with the anti-war movement. The voting age was dropped uh, to 18 during this, the, the height of the anti-war movement. And when you listen to the speeches made on the rationale for why to lower the voting age, it was specifically to make young people a part of the process so they would quit protesting and get on board with the American agenda, that they would feel like they had a they would feel like they had an interest in the system and they were able to exercise their civil participation, their voice within the process. And, and it would stop the protesting and stop the refusal and the draft burning and all this stuff. Cause imagine if you're an 18 year old kid and you can't even vote and you're being drafted, like that doesn't work. But if you had your say you're 18, you get a vote and we all decided now go, well, that's a little bit easier case to make. And, and, and then, so then going back to civil rights, well, you look at what happens over the next several decades where there's now a large voting block, especially in the South, of African-American voters, but there's no substantial change in the social environment for the African-American community for many, many decades after that. So mm -hmm. I don't know that it's a, it's a mythology of democracy issue, again, that are we better off caring about the outcomes in the African-American community or voting so that they would have some 
entitlement from the state. I, I think it's now I think it's accurate for someone to say, well, that's not an either or proposition, Matthew. You can do both. And maybe you can. But what I see around me time and time again mm -hmm. is not what I see around me is that people view their suffrage as their civil responsibility. And as much as people say, well, that's not where it ends. It is where it ends for almost mm -hmm. everyone mm -hmm. they, they don't they don't engage with the issues that they care. Who's who's going and tell me how many people who go and vote for Republicans so that they can stop abortion are spending time in pregnancy shelters or counseling with poor women or working to end abortion mm. almost none because if all those people who voted republican were actually working in those fields then we'd actually have substantial change in that in that issue voting feels like a gateway drug in that, in that regard it's right a, it's a little taste of something that pulls you in mm. uh to a to a system that that starts to own you rather than you owning it you know you right. you, you you cast your ballot uh with the idea that maybe you can change things and and you're the one who ends up being changed and, right. and you know uh, that's the danger you know there's other there's other you know real real world negative outcomes and i'll i'll recount a little bit a little bit of that i just i just, I just have to comment on this matt because you raise it but you you know you think of the this is almost unrelated to this conversation but the lunacy of, you know, the Vietnam where you're drafted, you're old enough to go die for your country as an 18 year old, but you're not old enough to, you know, to participate in the decision making process. Right. It's boggles the mind. But there's a great book came out about uh, 11, 12 years ago, I think it was, Mennonites to Amish in the Civil War. I don't know if any of you guys read that by uh, hmm. Stephen Nolte, I think. He's either from Goshen or EMU, and Layman is either from one of those or the other. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's a book for historians, I guess you could say, but it's a fairly easy read. But he really documents the Mennonites and Amish, uh, they, the authors really document the Mennonites and Amish experiences uh, in the Civil War. And in Lancaster County in particular, uh, you know, when, when, the, when the Mennonites and Amish moved over to the New World, you know, this whole thing of, of democracy, you know, they, as Matthew calls the mythology of democracy, wasn't a concept they were familiar with. And uh, most of the Mennonites and Amish in Lancaster County voted uh, during, during the Civil War. And it really and it really led to this, they were Republican, interestingly enough. And for those of you that are, you know, that are historians, we have a kind of homegrown senator, Thaddeus Stevens, who was like the hammer of the radical Republicans in the in the 1860s. And, you know, ardently abolitionist and ardently, you know, pro-war, pro-Civil War, pro-Abraham Lincoln. Well, the Mennonites in Amish and Lancaster County formed a significant voting block, and they voted uh, for Thaddeus Stevens uh, as, as uh, you know, as a member of Congress. And because of that, uh, this is the weird, you know, kind of, Dan, to your point, political deals that, that came out of that. Thaddeus Stevens then, you know, felt kind of beholden, if you will, to this voting block. And, uh, and because of that, he was the one instrumental in getting worked into congressional legislation, the deferments, uh, the draft deferments for the Mennonites and Amish uh, in the Civil War, and particularly the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the, uh, the uh, commutation fees, 
uh, mm -hmm. three or four hundred dollars or whatever it was, uh, so they could pay. And the Mennonites were, you know, were many of them relatively wealthy, and they had the social capital. Where for the poor ones, they paid each other's commutation fees and these kind of things. But in the election of 1864, then it was like really rancorous. And the authors in this book have done their homework and you know picked out editorials from newspapers from Northern Democrats who eviscerated the Mennonites who voted for the pro-war Republicans, Thaddeus Stevens and on down ticket line, Abraham Lincoln, and therefore got themselves, you know, all of these commutation fees. Their boys didn't have to go fight and die for General Lee and company. While the Northern Democrats, who all voted for uh, McClellan, I think, was running as a Northern Democrat, were the ones that you know didn't qualify for any of these fees that Thaddeus Stevens was kind of handing down. Now, the Quakers, he talks about them a little bit. The Quakers were a little bit more principled, and they refused to pay the commutation fees. They wouldn't any fee that directly went, and they wouldn't hire a substitute. Some of the Mennonites would hire substitutes, but it really it really caused quite a bit of of uh, disrepute, say put it that way. Uh, on, you know, directed towards people that represented the kingdom of God in Lancaster County in the 1860s uh, because of their kind of participation in the political process, which got them these favors uh, that, you know, that they then could avoid the sort of pain and suffering that, that those that had voted against the war effort uh, were, you know, were not afforded. So I think it's a real, you know, a real example of what you're talking about of how you kind of get sucked into the system and there's well, you lose your you lose your ambassadorial voice too. If you're a participant, mm -hmm. uh, you've taken sides. If you've taken sides, number one, now you've uh, you know now you've bought into to 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 a to a, a team. But I, I think there's something to be said for that. As I said earlier, I guard my independence. I I feel like as a as a follower of Jesus, you know that role of ambassador. I feel like the role of ambassador is some, an ambassador is someone that can speak to injustice uh, to to the country to which they're sent, can speak for his home, his home country, you know, and the values of that home country. To uh, but but if that ambassador starts to be compromised, if that ambassador starts to um, starts to pick sides in the country that they're a part of, um, they may lose their voice. And their ability to speak, just like the the compromise, you know, just look duplicitous to everybody who on the Democratic side back in the 1800s who saw these uh, these Mennonites and Amish, you know, kind of feathering their own nest as a result of uh, picking sides. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that the last election I voted in was the Bush-Gore election, and I, I became non-resistant after that election. And there's something about, you know, to back up, the, the complex social structures that we make are made out of, I don't know what you call it, faith or confidence or, 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 or goodwill. There's something that, that are, that's made in human institutions and complex social structures that's more than the sum of its parts. You know, like the, the economy is a perfect example. Like we carry paper and it has some intrinsic value because – enough of us all believe in that value. It, it's really just paper and it's no different than any other paper, but this paper has significance because we've all decided that this paper means something. There's something that happens in government institutions that's like that, that I, I don't think, I, I think 
part of the mythology is that government derives its power from the consent of the governed. And that is a mythology properly. I don't think that's where the power of the government actually comes from uh, in, in the tangible world or in the supernatural world. But, but it sells well. And it sells well because people believe that their authority is being lent to the powers that be. And, and I couldn't help after having elected, given my voice of consent to elect Bush, to feel a personal weight of responsibility for the Iraq war and everything that came after it. I shuddered for years and years to this day that my little piece of consent went to the death of a million Iraqis and not, not to mention everything else horrifying that happened during that whole administration. But I, I have to bear that now as a conscientious Christian that I raised my hand and gave that man power to go and murder a million people. And that's horrifying. Like you can't take that back. You can't call it back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that is good. And we should, I should probably start winding this down here, <laughs> but, um, I'm just, you should have known better than have three of us on to talk about this. Yeah, we got to have a, a part B and maybe C. But um, so what? Yeah, I mean it's it's all really good. You, uh, Matthew, I think you mentioned it a couple different times, but I like the um, the word that Dan's been using too, ambassador. So, like, the question then is: so what do we do? Right? Like what? We've we've talked about our weapons are superior. What what are those weapons? What do we do? Um, how how do we? All of us have mentioned how we don't just sit around. It's not like we sit passively and cheer from the sidelines. We are active participants in a completely other kingdom. And so let me just throw this out at you, and then you guys can talk about this maybe this will be our closing point of conversation but is it like we've said voting is literally kind of the easiest thing to do we could vote against abortion but to actually get involved and and go help out in a in a um pregnancy clinic or to begin mentoring young men and women in our community that are prime they're being taught sex ed in at a young age in school and that that whole thing is a is a funnel for abortion clinics um what if we teach them christ sex at sexual ethic and like that is way more difficult than voting going and standing in protest or just solidarity with a demographic of people that are being oppressed and risking the even cultural within Christian culture, the, the cultural uh, injury or suicide of, of standing in those with those people. Like that's almost more, more uh, difficult than voting for a right that that would allow them or even more so to help out with the poor to to take care of the poor to help out my friend who 
uh, is, yeah, like he needs help finding jobs. He needs help um, learning the ro- legal ropes of of our county and city. And, and that takes way more time than to vote for a few simple or even could it be that we are to be ambassadors even to the people in office? Like I know issues of my neighbors and to get to know the people on city council and so forth that, that I can be in communication with and saying, Hey, these are needs that we have, even though I'm ultimately letting them up to make the decision themselves instead of forcing their hand on a vote. Um, Like, is that, is that a way we as citizens of of Christ's kingdom can be a part of of um I guess working justice um is that like what I just described is that also what it means to make disciples along with teaching them the commands of Christ well there's there's this it's like evangelism at large there's no there's as many ways to do it as there are people and mm-hmm. skills and gifts and ministries i think that that jesus's people should be consummately and ardently political in regards to the kingdom of god and what that means is to create god's will on earth and however we can find to do that i i think people should be encouraged to find that what they're passionate about are you passionate about homelessness abortion mm. poverty immigration whatever you're passionate about be passionate about it and do meaningful things with real people mm. that's what i think is at the call of discipleship is get involved with real people i think that's what jesus wants us doing and i don't care how we do that but engage with your passions in real relationships that make differences in small scales i think that's the other thing is like there's an american sense of grandiose that we want to change the world Mm -hmm. we don't want to just work with some people in our neighborhood we don't want to just mentor a few kids or work with a poor couple or do financial literacy with an immigrant family like all that's pretty mundane but that's really what the kingdom of god and its ethos is made out of is those little things that make huge huge differences in one real life and i'd take that over over winning every election i ever voted in for all my days i would rather be involved in people and doing things that are meaningful to me and to them than all the political clout that i could muster in my life yeah it's it's the face-to-face hands-on I, I i do think that ambassador role is important for us we have to be aware uh, i don't I, I reject the idea that we're the quiet in the land living in our little subculture off in some distant place insulated you know and, and if people care to look in at us they'll see what the you know what the kingdom of god is like that's you know i, I don't i don't like that i i like an ambassador is aware and I think we have to be aware of what's going on if for no other reason than for because our neighbors may be suffering because of it. You know, there may be hurts. Um, but that face-to-face piece that I, I the closest I ever got to voting was was uh, the Iraq war. And and I actually wrote a letter. I've never written a letter to, to a government official. I wrote a letter to President Bush, uh, uh, you know appealing to him as a brother in Christ, just saying, look, 
please reconsider this. I, I at least for my in my spirit, I could see that war coming, and it just felt like a train wreck. And and you know it was. Um, and and I got a picture back from President Bush that was smiling. It was really nice. And, and but you know, and I put time and effort into that, and 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 it you know it, it didn't do anything. It made me feel a little better at least in, in the sense that I could speak up and, and I gave my voice of objection, but, um, but in terms of internal impact, that letter, you know, was time spent with very little results. Uh, the times we've opened our homes, you know, the times we've uh, built relationships with the poorest of the poor in Haiti or, 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 um, or, or brought in someone, a, a young person who's uh, just bumping along spiritually into our home, and you know, adopted them for a while. Those are the those are the things that I look back on and say, you know, there there's where the kingdom of God moved forward. Um, and I would, if if I was a voter, I, I think I would still feel that way. Um, but but uh, that's that's really where it's at. Mm -hmm. yeah I, would, I agree with what was said i think to your initial original question there asher i was i would probably say yes that discipleship includes you know speaking truth in ways that you know that go beyond uh you know have you accepted jesus in your heart mm -hmm. and you know if we can uh, influence, if we can appeal to, uh, pardon the language, but if we can appeal to the better angels of human nature and, and, and you know, and they're doing influence people and society for the better uh, because of advancing the principles of the kingdom of God, you know, I think we win. And case in point, uh, I just happened to be, uh, I was, and I agreed to go because a friend of mine asked, but a uh, uh, an acquaintance, I guess. An acquaintance of mine invited me to a political meeting of all things a week or two ago. And uh, at present at this meeting were this, the lady that's running for state attorney general, along with the state Senate majority leader and, and somebody else. And and I told him, well, I said, look, hey, you invite me to come. I'll come and listen and you know, I maybe even participate. But he was aware of, of my proclivities around these topics. So I went, and in the context of that, this this uh, lady that's running for state attorney general against Josh Pirro, who's the uh, state attorney general now, she mentioned that one of the things that she's really hoping to do if she wins uh, this position is to is to kind of is review the 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 way law enforcement views mental health uh, issues. And she pointed out, she was a Republican, and she pointed out that we, in, in, I don't know if you follow the news, but in Lancaster City here a week or two ago, a, a police was called to a house. The guy walks up to the door, a man jumps out with a knife and makes a headlong dash to the police officer. He instinctively pulls out his gun and shoots and kills him uh, on the street. So it's a tragedy in so many ways. Uh, the guy had mental issues and so on and so forth. So anyway, in the context of this, this lady was mentioning that she feels like uh, in a lot of cases, as in this case that had just happened in our hometown, there's mental uh, illness issues 
uh, that come into play in these sorts of events that, you know, that law enforcement is, is ill-equipped or, or trained to handle. And she would like to be part of, you know, thinking through. So uh, when she was done, said, anybody have any questions? So a couple people said, to me, I said, well, you know what? I heard that and that sounds good to me. And I spoke up at the meeting and said, you know what? You spoke about, and my, uh, my old father, in, interestingly, dealt with mental health issues. And so it's something that I could speak a lot about that, but it's something that's close to my heart. And I affirmed that, uh, not because I think it's, you know, I probably won't even win um, because Josh Shapiro is pretty, some pretty popular around here. But, but to me, is, you know, she said something that to me, I can affirm. I think it, it makes sense. And I don't have a problem speaking up in a context and affirming something like that just because, you know, she's running for state attorney general. Mm-hmm. There's a there's one of my favorite passages from the Patristics is in uh, I, I, who is it I always forget who it is it's one of the Clements he says the church is to the world what the soul is to the body and I think what he means is what the conscience is to the body and and that's a fascinating perspective that I've drawn again and again in regards to my relationship with the state. I think that the people of God should be acting as the conscience of the world. We should be either affirming, confirming what's good or rebuking what's wrong. Like there's a, and, and I think that the, what you've been referring to Dan, our, our autonomy as diplomats from the kingdom of God requires the, the, disconnect from the system enough to be able to offer that voice of conscience that cuts both across the spectrum. Sometimes this issue is right on the right. Sometimes it's right on the left. And the, the kingdom of God has to be able to, to follow what's true across that perspective. And there's something about our place to, to give voice to what's right and what's wrong that, that I think is a part of how God uses us in the world around us, collectively and individually. The last rally I went to, I went to when the when the Trump Muslim ban happened. Uh, we went to an immigration rally that happened here in Boston, and I, I don't begrudge Mr. Trump's right to control the borders of America. It's not my point. I, I, I don't even I don't even know how to make those decisions or how he, I don't presume to inform him on border security. What I do intend to do is tell immigrants that we love them and we're not afraid of them. And, and to be able to give voice to a, 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 a community like that and say, we're not afraid of you. You're welcome in our home. You're welcome in, in our place. And we care for you and we care for your needs. That's, that's something that I think that the church can be somewhere in between. And not everybody thought that people thought I was too political. Some people did for doing that. Other people think I'm not political enough for not voting about that issue if I care about it. But I think that there's a there's a balance place. And I don't know that we always strike it, but there's a balance place where we have our autonomy to give conscience to the world to say that's wrong. That's right. Well, and there's empathy is a part of that, too. We have to have our ears and our eyes open to need, to suffering uh, and we don't do that from a distance. We do that. We do that up close. We do that in proximity right. to people. I, it's interesting, and, and I, I hear somebody. I hear Josh. You, you mentioned this too. There, some, or, or maybe it was Asher. You, you can get labeled by being uh, an ambassador, particularly if you come down on one side or another. 
you know, hopefully we're, we're looking, we're, we're consistent enough that people eventually figure out that we're not, we're not liberal or, or we're not conservative, but we're, we're trying to model ourselves in the image and likeness of Jesus and resonating with the things that he would resonate with. But, but you, it can be costly. And if the church, if, if standing for an immigrant gets you labeled and loses you friends in the church, that's an indictment, I think, on the church because the church has become political. Or if if standing for the unborn, uh, you know, gets you gets you labeled, um, that that's 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 not something we should bear. Uh, maybe maybe we could bear it proudly because it's a it's an indication, I think, to me when you lose friends over overtaking a stand that that you can that that you can justify based on the teachings and example of Jesus i th- i think that's an indictment on the church not on us right mm. wow well it's been very good thank you guys for sharing i don't um there's so many more things we could talk about on similar lines i don't maybe we'll uh have to hook up again sometime but just thanks for taking the time to talk this evening and um for being men who are engaged in your communities um not sitting passively on the side and uh yeah amen well thanks asher thanks for putting it together yeah i really really uh, enjoyed the time thanks all of you brothers it's, uh, it's been enlightening yeah i got to meet matthew uh that that feels like a big win yeah all right thanks for listening to that podcast i hope you enjoyed the show if you have any questions that you'd like to ask either myself or any of the three guests feel free to leave a comment either underneath this video if you're watching the youtube version of it or you can email at podcast at asherwhitmer.com And let me know what you think, what your thoughts are. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating, a review if possible. And also look these men up on social media. Uh, Josh Good has done some stuff on YouTube. He created a video earlier this summer on Anabaptist vision, kingdom gospel, and American nationalism, racism, next steps. It's about an hour and a half long. It was a really good video. Uh, Matthew Milioni has a podcast does a podcast called the dank kingdom podcast with uh four other guests titus kipfer is one of them we have had him on the show before so definitely look them up and follow them on facebook if if you're into that kind of thing and hit us up with any questions or comments or whatever you have (laughs) if you have a idea for a future topic or a follow-up topic or something, yeah, hit us up on uh, podcast at asherwhitmer.com. Thanks for listening.